Good evening. <laughs> We've been uh, really exploring things a lot today in the sitting and in our exercises. And I'd like to talk this evening a little bit further about practicing wise speech when the conditions are difficult. <laughs> and I'd invite you as we uh, begin the talk to do two things. One is to set your intention for listening to the talk. It might be to actually connect with your deeper aspiration to awaken, to be free. Whatever that is for you. And then secondly, to work some with that quality of combining the inner listening with the outer listening. So that you can stay with your body so it doesn't become something purely uh, mental or mostly mental, but that it really has a resonance with the body and the heart. I want to talk really about three areas related to practicing wise speech when things are difficult. The first, which I'll be a little briefer on, has to do with how important what we might call the container of practice is. We have to keep building the container of practice in order to have strong resources when the going gets rough. We can't just want to practice wise speech and have it somehow come out of our, our wish. There, have to be, there has to be development. There has to be development of the qualities we've been talking about, mindfulness and wisdom, being with the body, maybe some of the skills of nonviolent communication, grounding in the guidelines of wise speech and so forth. And then the second area is, has to do with uh, how do we practice when we have difficult thoughts and emotions? Because mostly when we think about it, we don't usually think this way, but usually when we actually look carefully at difficult situations, why are they difficult? It's actually not necessarily that they're difficult in themselves, objectively, metaphys. There's not, I don't think, a metaphysical quality of difficulty <laughs> that's somehow in the world. But rather, when I first had this insight, it was kind of one of these blazing insights into the completely obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but difficult conditions for speech are difficult because we tend to have difficult experiences when those conditions are present. Namely, anger, confusion, despair, sadness, feeling lost, abandoned, all the things which may have come up when we did that exercise. That's what we call difficult conditions for speech. Difficult conditions for speech are when we have difficult experiences. If we don't have difficult 
emotions and thoughts, the experiences tend not to be that difficult. Isn't that a, a blazing insight into the completely <laughs> obvious? <laughs> it came about when I, I, I'll do a little excursus, it came about when I was actually started teaching uh, some day-long retreats on the theme of the Dharma of difficult people, with difficult people in quotation marks, you know. How can we be with difficult people? And it soon became obvious that there is not necessarily, like I said, a metaphysical category of difficult people that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, what, um, you don't graduate from the difficult person academy. <laughs> Maybe some people do. <laughs> but, but it's more that our so-called difficult people, in quotation marks, are difficult because we have difficult experiences with them. And then I go, oh, that changes things, doesn't it, when you look at it that way? It puts a little more of the attention on us, even though there are people that large percentages of us could agree are difficult. <laughs> I don't want to deny. So that approaches objective difficulty, but it doesn't fully get there. So I'll talk about that secondly. And then thirdly, I want to talk specifically about some uh, perspectives on, uh, on how we speak when things are difficult. I'll be kind of interfusing those three sections with, with um, reflections on speech throughout, but, I, but the last one I want to focus a little bit more. So the first point that I use the language of container, which is, uh, tends to be psychological language. Some of you know that we, we sometimes talk if in the world of psychotherapy, we build the container of the relationship of therapy. It's like or other language, we build the bubble. You know, there's kind of like a, uh, something that has some protection and some uh, strength. And that can actually, we could, it could, the container could be the, uh, you know, in, in Dharma or, you know, like here, our container is partly silence, it's the ethical agreements, it's the beauty of the land, it's the support of the staff, and so forth. That all builds a container, we could say, where learning can happen. Same thing with any learning situation. You need some outer structure and some inner support to make it work. And it's, I think it's really important to, to see that we are, in a sense, building the container that helps us with difficult conditions for speech. Another way to say it is that we're building resources. We're developing resources that, as they get stronger, we can bring them to bear on difficult situations. It's kind of an obvious point, but it's really important to remember because it's the building of those resources which I think is at the center of our ability to work with difficult situations. In other words, to, uh, to, to do that. And I, I think, one of the fundamental uh, perspectives is more of an inner understanding. Because in a way, the container is partly what we have just in our own being. I can have a strong container even when I'm in a group or a meeting where no one shares that container with me. If my set of resources are strong, I can be clear and firm and act wisely. If, if, I, if I have that capacity. It's harder when it's not shared, but it's possible. We all know ourselves 
to some, in some situations to do that. And then it's wonderful when that container where the resources are shared, when I'm in a community like this, where I can actually trust that other people are not there to attack me, that there's shared ethical guidelines. Or, you know, to do the exercises we've been doing, we know that people here are more or less committed to be mindful, to try to talk about what they're experiencing, to talk about observations and feelings and and needs and so forth, and to go there first as much as is possible. Doesn't that make things incredibly safe? How would it be in that exercise we did this afternoon if half the people here didn't have that assumption? Probably make it impossible to do the exercise, right? We couldn't do it. And so I think it's really important to reflect on those shared resources. And again, we can internalize them. In the extreme case, you know, think of, we know that there are Tibetan meditators who've been imprisoned and tortured for 10 or 20 years. And a lot of them, at least the ones that I hear about, they come out intact because they have the, we could call it the incredible inner container that can keep perspective in such extreme situations. You know, and I've read incredible stories of people in the Holocaust who also had that capacity. It's not so common, but there are those such people. You know, maybe they're the bodhisattvas or the, the great souls who have that capacity to be in really difficult situations and keep their inner balance or their inner center. One of the keys to doing that, I think that we've really seen, and it's a really a key for, as it were, con- keeping that container when, when there's difficult speech, is that commitment to coming back to our direct experience. It's the core of mindfulness, isn't it? It's that coming back to direct to my direct experience as much as I can. In nonviolent communication, very similar. Can I come back to my direct observation and as much as possible be careful about how that gets caught up in interpretations or evaluations? Again, not that we don't ever want to evaluate or interpret. We have to. But it's very helpful to know the difference. And that when we are looking to, let's say, work out a conflict with another person or come to uh, really know what's going on, it's extremely helpful to use the tools of mindfulness and nonviolent communication and try to simply say, what's going on inside? What am I experiencing? What are my emotions? And then we can sometimes intuit beneath those, what are my needs? And that becomes a primary tool that I think connects mindfulness practice with nonviolent communication. It's that commitment to have as the core discipline the coming back to direct experience. It's also something that we can increasingly bring into our difficult situations. It's really hard, isn't it? When someone attacks you verbally, it's very hard not to put up the defenses. And sometimes I think it's appropriate. But how can I, and I'll I'll talk about some examples as we go on, 
how can I, even in difficult situations, maintain that contact with my own experience so that I actually know, oh, I'm getting angry, rather than, as it were, meet someone else's story with my story. You know. Why did you do that? I didn't do that. <laughs> and we're off to the races, right? <laughs> the beginning of a three-hour discussion between partners. <laughs> you know? And this recourse to direct experience really is so crucial. The addition of the attention to feeling tone that we gave today, I think, is, is actually also very crucial. We want to have the ability to be able to come back to directly experience as much as possible thoughts, emotions, what's happening in the body. And this sense of feeling tone is great to notice because, as we've seen, noticing pleasant or unpleasant before it sort of morphs into extended emotions and stories is really, really crucial. Just to notice what that person said felt a little painful or felt good. That's the level of feeling tone. I have a friend named uh, Margaret Pavel who has this amazing habit, which she's had for a long time. It took me a while to realize what she was doing. When someone says something to her, I think we would say that feels painful to her, she actually operates on the level of feeling tone. And when someone says something I believe that would be painful, she says, ouch. Does anyone else do that here? Some of you. It's actually a a technique that I think is sometimes used. I have a student who works with uh, teenagers in the Sacramento area basically we've got in trouble with the law. She uses that technique a lot because you can see it brings you back more to direct experience before that ouch turns into resentment, a story, extended anger, connection with the past, and so forth. Again, sometimes we have to go into that territory, but having that connection and knowing simply that there's something painful is really, really crucial. Having that connection to uh, direct experience. And so when we have that kind of container and we go into a difficult experience, it make, can make all the difference. You know, uh, that we don't get so involved in mutually conflicting stories, which I'm making a little humor out of it now, but we know that those proliferating stories uh, cause wars, cause immense suffering. It's not something small, you know. And that I, I would actually say that it's a large role, as I mentioned, I believe, the uh, last time. The, a lot of what peacemakers do is they bring things back to the level of direct experience as much as possible. Because it's there that there can be um, both some simplicity and also the possibility of compassion. And again, I think we know this in many of our close relationships. You know, we know sometimes when we've had this argument with someone and we actually get to hear the other person's direct experience without my interruptions, let's say, 
We actually say, this is what I was experiencing. I was afraid. Oh, I thought you were doing this, and so forth. And normally, my experience is that when we hear that and the person is actually sincere and we take it back to direct experience, there's a tremendous softening of the heart which occurs. It's like the French say, to understand is to forgive. And I think that's what peacemakers do. They bring it back to direct experience. I know, I remember being quite inspired by hearing about the Oslo peace accords that occurred between the Palestinians and the Israelis in 1993, I believe. Even though the peace accords were extremely imperfect and flawed in many ways, there were were breakthroughs that occurred, and they occurred when it was there were meetings were happening in uh, near Oslo in Norway, and the foreign minister hosted them at uh, a for I think they broke off some period of their negotiations and they just went out to a country home with the foreign minister and his family, and they were in a house and they got to see the small kids playing. And what actually happened was they talked about their own lives, and they moved away from point and counterpoint. And that was when the breakthroughs happened. They heard each other's direct experience. And so that is an incredible resource. And if we can keep contact with our direct experience, we actually become available to bring forth wisdom and compassion. A second area which is really crucial is the ability to work directly with difficult thoughts and emotions. It's a big part of meditative practice. Many of you have done this in different capacities, but I want to say a few words about that capacity because, as I mentioned, if difficult conditions are primarily about us having difficult experiences, then a core of practicing with difficult conditions is how we practice with difficult experiences. And so what that concretely means is it's really important to learn how to work with anger, despair, self-judgment, judgment of others, fear, confusion. Any others you want to add? Shame, guilt. What are, you, what are your, what's on your top ten list? Jealousy, grief, Jealousy, grief. resentment, greed, greed. Rage. rage. Yeah, so, and also difficult thoughts, maybe confusion or some of those maybe paralyzing kinds of doubts that Richard was talking about that we clarified a little bit more this morning. And... And I want to suggest that I want to give, we could take a whole retreat on working with difficult emotions and thoughts, and we would scratch the surface. Maybe we should sometime. (laughs) 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 But what I would like to do is to give, in a simple way, a kind of overview method for working with difficult thoughts and emotions. And I think it's one that you can take home 
And so I think it's a method that has four categories, and it's one that you can whistle if you so choose. <laughs> Maybe not whistle, but hum at least. And the, um, the method I call MIWA, M-I-W-A. Maybe I could work out something better, but that's what I have for now. It, it stands for mindfulness, inquiry, wisdom, and antidotes. These are four methods. If we want to be able to work with difficult emotions and thoughts, this is a great preliminary toolbox. And we could actually take more time on each of them. Mindfulness, inquiry, wisdom, and antidotes. And I'll go over those briefly in order. We know mindfulness. You know, we know what mindfulness is. We've been exploring that a lot. Uh, mindfulness really involves a few different qualities. Mindfulness has to do with recognition of what's actually happening. There's the cogn cognizant factor, we might say, the cognitive factor of actually knowing what's going on. So it's not just awareness, but actually knowing that it's not just consciousness, but actually knowing that something is happening. Remember, I think we had that discussion a few days ago about the distinction between mindfulness and consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is the quality of knowing. There's a quality of knowing there. But it also has a quality of being present, of being non-judgmental, and of being more direct, more directly touching experience, not so mediated. There's also a quality in mindfulness of um, accepting, in some sense, what's happening. And that's challenging when there, is, when there are difficult experiences. So there's something about mindfulness which says, this is really happening, and I will be aware of it. This really difficult anger or grief is happening, and I'm going to try to be with it, and even to study it, to be present. The, basis, the basic um, understanding connected with mindfulness is that we continually intend to be mindful of what's happening in the present moment. Over time, we study the whole repertoire of human experience, the whole spectrum. We, we hang out with these emotions. Personally, I, I don't know whether this is your experience, but I, I have had, it's almost like a number of my retreats have just been focused on one major difficult experience <laughs> that gets repeated over and over again. Now, I've had other, other retreats which are focused on beautiful qualities. And some of them are mixed, but a lot of them, you know, I can think I've had my fear retreat. I had a retreat where I was mostly exploring fear for 10 days. Fear wasn't the same after that, because I got to study it. I got to really see it. I had another retreat, which was my anger retreat. I may seem like a kind of a nice guy, <laughs> but on this retreat, uh, it, was, it was a while ago, but I, in, in my book I actually talk about it. I, I give a, a page and a half description of 
being angry virtually 16 or 18 hours a day for 10 days. That's story number five. <laughs> I, can't, I, don't, I won't give it in detail, but just to say I had really good guidance. I was being guided by Jack Cordfield. And I really got to study it. I stayed with it. I studied in the body. I studied in the mind. It was amazing. I got to see all sorts of permutations of anger. I found out there's not, at least for myself, there's not one form of anger. I found like six. Some of it was petty anger, just I'm not getting my way or something. Some of it was anger that was motivated by love, where I was actually, there was a lot of care connected with the anger. Some of it was like being an Old Testament prophet. It was like a quality of wrath. And I would say, you can do what you want, but cosmic justice will get you. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was 100% pure, but, but there was a lot of that energy. I really felt, I really felt, oh God, this is, my, this is what the you know, Jewish prophets must have experienced, or Jesus with the money changers, you know, it's like this, or something. Like, I don't want to compare myself overly to those <laughs> figures. <laughs> But that's what it felt like at the time. It actually felt like that. It felt like it was, some, it was kind of a prophetic wrath, which I knew in myself it was not really petty. And there was some way that it linked with some, some, some wisdom, actually. That was interesting. And, and I could also see how I'd be with the anger, and it would change. It would lead one thing to another. So it was really interesting. I've had other retreats which have been exploring self-judgment for, you know, a month. It really helps, I mean, and I, I think there are probably other, those, those are the main ones that I remember, you know, the fear, the anger, the self-judgment, and so forth. And uh, when we can actually be mindful of those for extended time, it's like we get to study them. And that's really the second aspect of this set of tools. The first is mindfulness, and mindfulness is recognizing its being with, at a certain point it kind of, bends into what we might call inquiry, a little more active. Inquiry is actually, it really, mindfulness is, I think there's a kind of inquiry that's really based on mindfulness, being with it, really staying with it. If the, you know, because anger, like when I was, when I was experiencing it 18 hours a day, it was there all the time, you know, it was like my meditation object, it was like my breath, and I didn't have to look for it. You know, and so I could actually be with it and watch it, watch the stories, watch the way it was in the body, and just notice when it arose, how it changed, when it changed into sadness, when it changed into, when the sadness sometimes would change into love, or when it would change into petty reactivity, and so forth. And there's a way in which that we can inquire and bring a little more active quality that kind of deepens the mindfulness. So I can ask, and this is something that I think is very connected with what we were doing with Gene with those cards today. Because what we were really doing was beginning to see, uh, maybe for many of us not just beginning, but we were actually noticing some very fundamental patterns that may have been going on for a really long time. 
And for some of us, we may know them pretty well. But what we would do with the factor of inquiry, we would start to study those patterns. We would look at situations where, like the, you know, uh, with Jean it was someone says something, you're too sensitive, and she goes somewhere, right? Or I'll tell a story of, um, that has been really important for me when I was really doing a lot of inquiry, and this is partly around the theme of judgment. But I once had a, a boss that I met with every two weeks. I had to speak with him. I guess that goes without saying, but, but uh, it was difficult. I thought, and many concurred, <laughs> that he was not a good listener. And it's actually hard to know what was happening because about, I think about a year and a half later, he actually developed a brain tumor and died very suddenly. And so it's hard to know what was affecting his brain when I was having difficult interactions with him. It's, it is, my guess is that he was actually not a good listener for most of his life. And so the problems would have been there earlier, but I don't know for sure. And so I would meet with him, and I, would, uh, and I, was getting, I was being guided by a mentor. I would meet with him every two weeks, and there was kind of a sequence that happened, which is really kind of an inquiry sequence. And it actually could, could be a kind of practice sequence for working in, with difficult conditions and developing wise speech. So part of it, when I, what I first started to find out was that uh, I would suddenly find myself talking with him, kind of reactive. You know, and I wouldn't necessarily know so clearly what happened during the meeting. We'd have hour, two hour long meetings. And I'd suddenly, you know, and so it's like I started to get some sense that there was something happening. I didn't instantly go in, oh yes, this pattern's happening. When he says this, I do this. That was more or less the fruit of a few months of inquiry and really noticing carefully with repetitive situations. I think we have to have that quality of study with our patterns. Really study them, notice them, inquire. And so I would you know, notice that I was reactive, that I was, that I was um, um, judgmental of him. My mentor really encouraged me to study the situation carefully kind of use these experiences as learning situations, which is really a great thing to do, you know, with any difficult speech condition. Take it as a potential learning. It's like the Tibetan Lam Rim says, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. <laughs> Isn't that inspiring? Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And I was doing that. I would, I was, at that time, I was quite busy. And I sometimes complained about not enough time for my spiritual practice. And when I took this, I took, started taking those days every two weeks like retreats. I say, oh my God, I have, I have now I have a whole half day of retreat. And I would take, <laughs> and I would, I would um, take public transportation. And I do metta on the public transportation. I get myself prepared. And then I'd have to walk maybe 15 minutes. I'd do walking meditation. 
and I would really be in a meditative state. And I would try to then, I say, I'm really going to study what happens. And then, you know, after a while I found there was a pattern. The pattern was I would say something, he would not listen, he would change the subject, and I would go somewhere. As I looked more carefully, and this is really what inquiry is about, it's really starting to notice, okay, what's the trigger for a pattern? How does the pattern arise? How does it change? Where does it go? What's the sequence of stimulus and reaction? And I think we actually have to study our patterns. At a certain point, practice accelerates when we become really interested in our reactive patterns. Essentially, I think Richard mentioned something like this, we become actually interested in our forms of suffering. Not to go overboard on it, but... (laughs) But there's something I got really interested. I want to see how I get lost and what the patterns are. So I guess I had enough perspective on it so it wasn't real overwhelming. You know? So that's the kind of patterns. If something's real overwhelming, it's harder. But these are patterns where it's hard, but it's not impossible. It's kind of the, um, you know, the degree of difficulty is not 10. It's maybe like 7 or 6 or something. You know, those... I was on retreat during the Olympics, so I didn't really notice, but there must have been a lot of degree of difficulty stuff from the Olympics, right, with divers and so Anyone watch that? No? Different crowd. (laughs) Okay. I I like to watch the swimming. Swimming, because I I actually was a competitive swimmer for 10 years, and I really, really liked that. So I'm, I'm revealing things about myself. I was a clown and a competitive swimmer, but not at the same time. (laughs) So in that situation, I became gradually able to start to see the patterns. And I started to isolate. I started to see, oh, because it takes time, right? You look at your reactive patterns. It took me time to realize that that I would say something, and he wouldn't apparently listen. He would change the subject. And then I would go somewhere. That takes time to kind of flesh out. You start with a, just a, a lousy experience, and then you attend to it, and gradually there gets to be a little more clarity. That's how the process of mindfulness and inquiry work. And I think very much like what we were doing with the cards. And so over time, I began to look more carefully, and then I saw that in my mind there were a lot of judgments. And then I, I started to see, oh, I say something, he doesn't seem to listen, go somewhere else. And then internally, I started to notice I withdraw emotionally. And I go to a stance of what I would call dis, uh, distanced moral superiority. Form of judgment. It's a defense mechanism of sorts. You know, I wouldn't be listened to. I would retreat emotionally and start judging him from certain moral heights. Does anyone also do this? (laughs) So it's really good to name it and to start to see it, right? It's pretty interesting. Then, with further guidance, I became able to really start to be interested in the inner process when I would be engaged in these conversations. I started to be really interested. Let me look at it. So I actually would go into these situations and really be interested in having some outer attention. And I would... You know, I'd try to, I wasn't 
always exactly like that, but it happened a lot. But I would try to look at my own inner state when this happens, try to have more mindfulness and more inquiry. How did it start? What's my inner state? Where do I go? And I started to notice that I would, uh, that there was a moment when I looked carefully, there was that moment, we could call it the moment of the feeling tone. I noticed that there was a moment of, ouch, this doesn't feel good. And that happened before I kind of retreated into the distanced, moral, moral superiority, emotionally withdrawn. In other words, I started to bring everything into a kind of slow motion and study it. And I could actually see that this was happening. What I found then over time was this was a key moment. And it's actually what I have also found in a lot of work with judgments with other people. Because I think I've mentioned it's surprisingly become a kind of a specialty over the last five or six years. I do monthly groups on the theme of self-judgments. And in my own practice, as well as working with others, I tend to find that judgments, like the one I described, tend to be defense mechanisms to avoid unacknowledged pain. And that when we actually bring the attention and touch that pain more, we don't have the automatic reaction that goes into the judgment. And so what I would do here is I would learn how to be with that feeling of this doesn't feel good and stay there. And I found when I did there, I could feel my mind, almost at a certain point, I remember feeling my mind starting to go into the judgment. So it's almost like a a strong tendency, like a habit. But I had enough mindfulness so I could see that and said, and I could ask, do I want to go there? And it's at that point that I began to have some options for speaking wisely. And then I, you know, then I would say this breathtakingly brilliant comment. I'm not sure you heard what I was saying. (laughs) 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 But it's an important point for me, and I'd like to, I'd like to come back to that. Something like that's pretty non-aggressive, right? That only could happen when I wasn't in the grip of the judgment. If I'd been in the grip of the judgment, you know what would come out. Something that would come out of a certain, I I, I would say, unacknowledged pain. Because that's what I think judgments are. They carry intelligence and observation. I noticed that he wasn't listening to me. That's intelligence. That's useful. You know, if I'm going to talk with him and work it out, that's useful information. But the reactivity that made me distanced and judging him, there's something there to work out. And I found that actually touching the pain, I tended not to go into the judgment. And I actually had some options and some freedom for how to speak. And it's at that point that I could bring in some of these tools of wise speech and uh, nonviolent communication. Because I think when we're in the grips of reactivity, it's, it's not going to work so well. We're going to use those tools more like as uh, weapons or as uh, manipulative devices. So I think, I think it really, it, that's, that's where, and in some sense, it's really the working with our own experience that's at the core of working with difficult uh, conditions. We can have these tools as really valuable tools in our repertoire. But it's the working with the mind and the heart that's really fundamental. 
There's a, there's a really nice statement from a, one of the great Tibetan teachers of the 20th century named uh, Dogo Kense Rinpoche. Some of you may have heard him. He's, he's, his work really inspires me. And he says this, Whatever we do involves the use of body, speech, and mind. Of these three, body and speech by themselves cannot initiate any activity. It is the mind that determines everything we do and say. And I would say, by mind, it means mind and heart. It is the mind and heart that determines everything we do and say. It is the mind and heart that is most important. That is why Buddhist teachings focus on perfecting the mind and heart. The mind and heart are king, and body and speech are servants, which must do its bidding. And so it's that, that work which we do. And so the inquiry, uh, over time, I became able to see those patterns and really notice them. And what I found also was that as I stayed with the pain, I could see how that uh, pattern wasn't just happening with this boss or this authority figure. It was happening, it tied all the way back to all sorts of situations. It was kind of like our, what we worked with earlier. It's kind of like, I would say, it's kind of like a core wound or a core area of pain in my life. You know, not feeling listened to, not feeling heard. You know, that when that would happen, I would just go and go somewhere, right? And that's what we experienced with our looking at our different patterns. What I found was that when I actually touched the pain, it tended to be healed. And yet, using mindfulness, I could do that over and over again. And also, working with judgments in a meditative context or others, touching the pain that's connected with some of those difficult patterns my experience was tended to not only um, give some room to be basically free from going into the patterns, but it also tended to heal the underlying force that drives those patterns. I think mindfulness and presence in the company of pain is healing. It's really one of the great reasons why this practice is so powerful. So the that's inquiry, and kind of an extended example of inquiry in the context of speech. And we also can really use the quality of wisdom. We can, uh, if we can just ask in a difficult situation, how can I respond wisely? And actually ask that question, I think we've done 80% of the work. That's that point that uh, Phil made a few days ago for the question. Uh, the most difficult thing about practice is not the practice, it's remembering to do the practice. And of course, in difficult situations, we forget much more easily because it kind of arouses our survival body, you might say. You know, so whether it's psychological or physical, we get into survival mode and we forget all about practice. And so, if we can just ask the question, how might I act wisely in a difficult situation? It goes a tremendous way. And we can, you know, once we ask that question, then we can do a lot of things. We can invite the wise being to enter the scene, like we did this afternoon. That's a great technique. The hardest thing is not doing it, it's remembering to do it, right? So tie a... a picture of a wise being around your <laughs> wrist or, or whatever, you know. We can, add, we can reflect on different points. We can, we can um, 
be with a difficult experience and reflect on impermanence. This will pass. We can look into the causes, how things arise, how they pass away. We can be with difficult experiences, especially if we're doing, facing them in meditation, and work with the principle of non-identification. Can I just be with these phenomena and not take them personally? This is happening right now. Can I just be with this stuff? You know, like Richard was talking about his wife Kathy during childbirth. These intense phenomena, at a certain point, she said, this is what's happening. I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to be with it as best I can. That's a kind of non-identification, really crucial for being with difficult material. And then lastly, there are the antidotes to difficult uh, experiences. There's mindfulness, there's inquiry, there's wisdom. There's anti- antidotes are useful when our mind is not in, the, in balance. And it's really crucial because we're not always capable of using mindfulness. We're not always capable of using inquiry. We're not always capable of using wisdom. And it's really important to know that. Sometimes things are really, really difficult and our mind's out of balance. And then the most important thing is to bring it back to balance. Sometimes that might simply mean leaving the situation, you know, taking a time out. If we have a difficult encounter with someone else, saying, can we talk about this tomorrow or in a few days or in a week? Really important, simple, kind of common sense. I mean, your grandmother or grandfather would tell you. But it's really, really crucial. An antidote might be to, when we're feeling unbalanced, to say, time to meditate. Might be do metta, you know, like I was my story of the bear this afternoon. My mind was getting unbalanced, sitting in the wilderness thinking about a bear coming into my tent. (laughs) I did not choose to use mindfulness there. It seemed like an antidote was called for, so I did loving kindness towards myself, towards my benefactors, towards the bear. And it worked. It basically brought my mind back to balance. It took a while. But that's really important to remember to, to, use, to use antidotes then. It's really to shift the energy. So the last thing I want to talk really briefly about are just a few other notes. Because I've talked a lot about bringing uh, speech in conjunction with our wisdom and our mindfulness. But I want to make just a few other points. One of them is, is that I think that there are three kind of situations. Let's say we're just with another person and we're having a difficult encounter and we're involved with speech. I think there are three different dimensions of working with the situation. The first is doing our own inner work on whatever is happening for ourselves. That would be doing what we, I just talked about, working with our own individual emotions and thoughts and so forth. A second way to work is to then bring our uh, attention to how do I speak skillfully. So there's the inner work with the experience. There's the skillful speech just on my own. And the third possible way of working is when both of us actually have an interest in wise speech or in nonviolent communication, such as 
we have here. Now what's interesting is that that last condition is not always present. And that makes for a lot of complexities in terms of applying wise speech to difficult situations because a lot of times we have to try to use wise speech with someone who is himself or herself is not using wise speech. How do we do that? Interpersonally, it can be quite complex. You know, with my boss, if I had said, which I don't think I said, would you be interested in using wise speech together? <laughs> he would have looked at me. He, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to get... He had a lot of great qualities, but... But... <laughs> um, he probably would have said, are you real? <laughs> or what planet do you live on? Or you know, something that would have sent me off to emotional distance and moral superiority quite quickly. <laughs> you know? So that happens sometimes, and we have to acknowledge that. But the thing to remember that's really crucial is we can always do the first two forms of practice. We can always work on ourselves and what's happening experientially, and we can always attempt wise speech. Wise speech is very significant even when the other is not practicing wise speech. The best situation is when we have shared agreements and shared perspectives and shared intentions, and we're all trying to practice wise speech. That can still be difficult because people can say they're practicing wise speech and do all sorts of things. Um, but it's really that it's really helpful to remember that perspective and to kind of distinguish those different uh, dimensions of a difficult situation and know that we always have the power to work on the first two. And I think that's a really important point because a lot of times people say, it's a difficult situation, I give up. And I think that's a confusion because we can always do that work. So I think I want to end just by saying that the core work to do for developing the capacity to be with difficult situations and use wise speech, the core work is really no different than our, we might say, our basic spiritual practice. It's to develop mindfulness, it's to develop the open heart, it's to develop wisdom. It's to work with intention. It's to be grounded in the body. And then we add these dimensions of working with ethical guidelines for speech that we get from the Buddha and others, and using some of these techniques of, um, of uh, nonviolent communication. But I think that those are tools that only really can be meaningful if the other resources are also working. They can help us. They can point us in a direction. If we have a community that follows wise speech, it helps, but it doesn't resolve the issues necessarily. The resolution of the issues comes from those other practices. So I think I'll just end with um, a story, a short story of... (laughs) One story. I feel like you should take out your pillows and your blankies. (laughs) Lie down and we'll tell we'll tell wise speech bears. 
bearer stories. But I, wanna, I do want to end just with uh, a great story about wise speech. Summoning mindfulness, wisdom, and so forth. This is from a three-and-a-half-year-old. This is a true story. I heard it from a friend. There were two families that were going on a vacation trip. And there was a, there was a three-and-a-half-year-old boy and a girl about the same age, and they were riding in the back seat. And the girl started calling him a bad boy, started judging him harshly. At that point, he brought to bear mindfulness, wisdom, and clear intention that had come from his training with his parents. His parents had taught him that actually you are good in your nature. Some of the things that you do, we question. (laughs) You know, that distinction between the action and the person. Basic for raising kids, right? In Christian language, it's the difference between the sin and the sinner. Pretty fundamental. And, and so, this boy composed himself, reached into his repertoire of wise speech and deep dharma, and said to her very directly, after she had said, you're a bad boy, he said, There are no bad boys, only bad actions. (laughs) I think there could be a technical term for this. This is called the uh, powerful use of pith, wisdom, and uh, testimony. (laughs) Anyway. it was incredible to hear that there are three-and-a-half-year-olds who are walking around that conscious and that able to bring wise speech and wisdom into the situation. And it really, I think, to me, kind of points to uh, how wise speech really comes out of our evolving maturity, our ability to to bring wisdom to a situation, to bring compassion to a situation. We have these great tools, but ultimately, in a sense, the wise speech comes deeply out of our hearts and our wisdom. It comes out of something that's not simply a technique, but more like a state of being. And that's what we want to, in a sense, uh, keep on cultivating. Let's just sit for a minute or so together. just invite you to reflect on whatever may have mm, felt important to you, either about something I said or about something that 
came up in yourself as you were listening. It could actually not even be directly related to the talk, because sometimes talks evoke something. So just to invite that to be present.